This is a Reconstruction Radio production. Please visit GaryNorth.com slash free books to download this book in PDF form. The Greatness of the Great Commission, Christian Enterprise in a Fallen World, written by Kenneth L. Gentry, Jr., published in 1990 by the Institute for Christian Economics, Tyler, Texas, narrated by Joseph Spurgeon. Chapter 7. The Continuance of Sovereignty. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Matthew 28:20b. As I have been noting throughout this study, the greatness of the Great Commission largely has been overlooked by modern Christians. In this chapter, I will consider another aspect of the Commission's greatness that has been diminished at the hands of too many well-meaning expositors of Scripture, the expected outcome of the Great Commission in history. By way of introduction, and before actually demonstrating the reasons for the progress of the Gospel, I will state briefly what I believe those prospects are to be. Then I will return to revive the biblical foundation supportive of them, as found in the Great Commission and elsewhere. The expectation of the Commission's influence is that the Gospel of Jesus Christ will gradually and increasingly triumph throughout the world until the large majority of men, with their cultures and nations, are held in its gracious and holy sway. The ultimate effect will be that unparalleled, though never perfect, righteousness, peace, and prosperity will prevail throughout the earth. In other words, the Bible holds forth a gloriously optimistic prospect for the future conversion of men and nations during this present gospel age. This view of the progress of history is known as postmillennialism, for it teaches that Christ will return after millennial conditions are spread throughout the world. Now to the task at hand. Regarding the bright future of a world won by the Great Commission, let us consider first the Commission's empowerment. This point must be emphasized. No optimistic expectation for the future of mankind convincingly can be argued on a secular base. This glorious postmillennial aspect is not in any way, shape, or form rooted in any humanistic theory or on the basis of naturalistic evolutionary forces. We cannot have a high estimation of the prospects of man's future based on man in himself. For the mind still in the flesh is hostile towards God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so, and those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Romans 8, 7 and 8. When left to himself, man's world is corrupted and destroyed, a classic illustration being in the days of Noah. Genesis 6, 5. Neither is the hope for the progress of mankind under the gospel related to the Christian's self-generated strength, wisdom, or cleverness. Left to our own efforts, we Christians too quickly learn that apart from me you can do nothing, John 15.5. In fact, this is well illustrated in the historical context in which the Great Commission itself was given. The commission was issued by Christ to a small body of fearful Christians who had very recently forsaken him and had fled. These men fearfully hid themselves due to the violent opposition to Christ generated by the Jews and exercised by the Roman Empire an opposition he prophesied would only get worse than their own generation. Yet now, Christ comes to command these cowardly disciples to take the gospel to all nations, Matthew 28:19, beginning first at Jerusalem, Luke 24:47. They were now being instructed in the engagement of preaching the name of Christ in Jerusalem, the capital of Israel, and the site of Christ's crucifixion, and Rome, the capital of the nations of the Roman Empire under whose authority the crucifixion had been performed. How can they take heart in such a fearful prospect? Surely such would put their lives on the line before vehement Jewish opposition and inconsistent Roman legal system. 
And how may we today expect to have any success with the gospel against our opposition? The humanistic opposition is well-funded, adequately equipped, and powerfully situated in seats of rule. Nevertheless, a glorious future is ensured by God's sovereign decree, and on His principles, as we shall see, for He works all things after the counsel of His will. The disciples then and today must learn that Almighty God causes all things, even the evil intentions of man, to work to His own ultimate glory and the good of His redeemed people. Regarding the greatness of this great commission to the nations, our command is not a command to make bricks without straw. The glorious hope comes not by might nor by power, but my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Zechariah 4, 6. We may know that in fact we can do all things through him who strengthens us. Philippians 4:13. For God is able to make all grace abound to you, that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. 2 Corinthians 9, 8 and 10. Rather than on a sinful naturalism, then, the prospect of gospel victory is based on a high supernaturalism that involves the powerful, penetrating spiritual influence of the Word of God and of Christ, which alone is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Hebrews 4.12 In fact, the gospel of Jesus Christ is the very power of God unto salvation, to the Jew first, and also the Greek. And the Great Commission well informs the disciples of this. I will not treat at length the basis of hope, for in essence I have done so earlier, chapter 3 and 4, but I do need to reintroduce it into my treatment at this juncture by way of reminder. The sure basis for the glorious hope of mankind's redemption is the sovereign authority of Jesus Christ, the Lord of Lords and King of Kings. We should remember that the Great Commission opened with this noble declaration. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Matthew 28:18. That authority encompassed heaven and earth and is above every name that is named. Christ has the authority to perform his will among men. He has all authority to command these frail, fumbling, and fearful disciples to engage the world-changing work he wants done. In addition, that authority involves the triune God as well, for baptism is in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Matthew 28:19. What are the powers of mortal men or even of infernal hell against such authority? By the grace of God and only by the grace of God are we enabled to do the work of the Lord with the hope of success. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. 1 Corinthians 15.58 Though weak in and of ourselves, we are promised that Christ's grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. 2 Corinthians 12.9 His power is perfected in our weakness. The assurance of covenantal succession via the Great Commission is granted with these truths in mind. The words of authority claimed by Christ throw the emphasis squarely on him to whom the authority was given. The exact order of words in Christ's opening statement in the commissionment is, Given to me was all authority in heaven and on earth. Grammatically, words cast forward in Greek sentences receive emphasis. This is called prolepsis. Here, those emphasized words are, Given to me. Standing there before and with him in his resurrection body was the very one who had just conquered death itself. And he opened his mouth to them. He declared that he had the authority necessary for their aid. His very presence was the object lesson. 
he had the authority to do the unthinkable. Furthermore, though he would be returning bodily to heaven soon, Acts 1.9, he left an enabling promise with them. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age, Matthew 28.20. Not only does he arrest their attention with this attention-focusing lo, but again the Greek syntax is instructive. The Greek language is an inflected language. That is, its verbs do not require pronouns to specify their meaning. Contained in the verb ending itself is the pronoun idea. But when pronouns are used with the verb, as here, much emphasis is being cast on the statement. As Robertson puts it, when the nominative pronoun is expressed, there is a certain amount of emphasis, for the subject is in the verb already. In the Greek, Christ could have merely said, I am with you, meth human amy, but he is much more emphatic. He is determined to drive the point home to these frail disciples. He says literally, I with you, I am. Ego meth human amy. As Linsky notes, ego is decidedly emphatic, meaning essentially, I myself. That is, paraphrasing this in the English phaseology, he says, I myself am with you. The drift is obvious. His scattered, fearful disciples should let their eyes and their hearts remain fixed on him. He who claims all authority in heaven and on earth, and who has arisen from the dead, will be with them. Believers are adequately empowered for the task of world evangelism and the Christian culture transforming labor that follows an evangelism's trail. Christian has the abiding presence of the resurrected Lord of glory through the spiritual operation of the indwelling Holy Spirit, whom Christ says grants power from on high, Luke 24:49. The Christian should not read newspapers and fear the encroachments of the various branches of secular humanism in history, for secular humanism in all of its manifestations is but an idol for destruction. And this powerful, enabling presence is not limited to the apostolic era of the church. For the fourth time in these three verses he speaks of all. In verse 18 he claimed all authority. In verse 19 he commanded the discipling of all the nations. In verse 20a he commanded the observing of all whatever he commanded. In verse 20b he promised, I am with you all the days, till the full end of the age. Here Christ's promise is a covenantal promise established in succession arrangements. His perpetual presence will be with his people for however long they are upon the earth. The grammar here suggests he will be with them each and every day through all the days that come their way. And due to the magnitude of the work before them, he commanded them to disciple all the nations. His second advent, which will close the gospel age, necessarily lays off in the distant future. As Bruce perceptively observes, all the days of which it is implied there may be many. The vista of the future is lengthening. Nevertheless, the resurrected Christ promises, I myself with all authority in heaven and earth am with you until that distant age. I have shown that by establishing the succession of the covenant, the powerful Christ promises to be with his people always. But this only renders the glorious prospect of world conversion and the glorious future resultant from that a theoretical possibility. With Christ's presence, the magnitude of the job certainly is not overwhelming. But shall it come to pass in actuality? Is the evangelization of the entire world, including virtually all men and nations, the anticipated goal of the Great Commission? In an important sense, we are inquiring into the correspondence between the Lord's Prayer and the Great Commission. Are we believing to pray, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, Matthew 6.10, and then to labor actually to fulfill that commission, to make disciples of all the nations? Was John Calvin... 1509 to 1564, correct long ago when he wrote the following regarding Christ and the Great Commission. He had to hold supreme and true divine power of command 
to declare that eternal life was promised in his name, that the whole globe was held under his sway, and that a doctrine was published which would subdue all high-seeking and bring the whole human race to humility. Briefly, they were to lead all nations into the obedience of faith by publishing the gospel everywhere, and that they should seal and certify their teaching by the mark of the gospel. Was the beloved commentator Matthew Henry, 1662-1714, in line with biblical warrant when he paraphrased Christ's command in the Great Commission as follows, Do your utmost to make the nations Christian nations. It seems indisputable that this is precisely what Christ anticipates here. Let us carefully note how this is so. Earlier in chapter 4 I noted how Christ directed the commission to all cultures and nations, and not just to individuals. In chapter 5 I showed how the mission of Christ's people was to disciple those whom it was directed. Here I take a step further to, to consider the important fact that Christ fully expects that the nations will be converted and brought under his gracious sway. Again, I must qualify what I am saying in order to dispel any erroneous perceptions. I am not saying that the sum total of the Great Commission is directed to cultural renewal and that all else is incidental. The initial influence of the Great Commission necessarily works first in individuals, saving them from their sins and giving them new hearts. Then, those individuals who are saved and have been given new hearts are obligated to live new lives. To all Christians the Scripture command that you are to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Philippians 2, 12-13 Christians are to bring every thought captive to the obedience to Christ. 2 Corinthians 10, 5 Christian cultural transformation necessarily demands the wide-scale salvation of multitudes of individuals. Implied in Christian cultural renewal is individual personal salvation. Having briefly noted that, now I turn to the words of the Great Commission as actually uttered by our Lord. The relevant portion of Christ's command is really quite clear. Disciple all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That he fully expects the successful discipling of all the nations may be supported on the following basis. First, the grammatical structure of the command expects worldwide conversions. The Greek verb, matheteo, disciple, here is in the active voice, and is followed by a noun in the accusative case, ethne, nations. In addition, it is important to understand that this verb, matheteo, is normally an intransitive verb, but is here used transitively. That is, matheteo transfers its action, discipling, to its direct object, nations. Matheteo appears only two times in the New Testament, in the active voice, and coupled with an accusative, here and in Acts 14.21. The Acts passage is helpful in understanding the significance of the grammatical structure. In Acts 14.21 we read, Having proclaimed good news also to that city, and having discipled many, they turned back to Lystra, Iconian, and Antioch. Here it is evident to all that the many have been discipled. Who would dispute the clear statement that the apostles actually discipled? The active voice of Matthew, the many expressed and mentioned. And this same grammatical relationship appears in Matthew 28:19, where we read the command, Disciple all the nations. How is it that some do not understand Christ's command to involve the actual discipling of all the nations? Is not the word nations in the accusative case, and therefore the direct object of the discipling labor of the church? In addition, Linsky states that this commands a disciple. This imperative, of course, means to turn into disciples, and its aorist tense form conveys the thought that it is actually to be done. Second, the lexical meaning of the term matheteo supports the teaching of the expectation of worldwide conversions. As I noted earlier in another context, the Greek verb 
Matheteo does not merely mean to witness. It involves the actual bringing of the person or persons under the authoritative influence and instruction of the one discipling. It entails the actual making of the disciple for Christ. Third, the supplementary and coordinate command anticipates worldwide conversions. It is evident that the command to disciple actually expects the conversion and training of the nations. For those nations are then to be baptized, making disciples of all the nations, baptizing them. According to Christ's command, those who are discipled are to be baptized, which action clearly portrays their coming under the authority of the triune God, i.e. becoming Christians. In the original Greek, the plural pronoun, altos, them, refers back to the plural noun, ethne, nations. The nations are expected to become Christians by discipleship, and to be marked out as under God's rule by baptism. There are those who attempt to circumvent this point by arguing that the pronoun them does not refer back to the nations, but to those who are made disciples. They suggest that it is not the nations as such, but individuals from among the nations who will be baptized. They do so because the pronoun found here, altos, them, is in the masculine form, whereas the noun ethna, nations, is in a neuter form. Normally, pronouns agree in gender with their antecedent nouns. The idea forwarded is that the noun form of the verb to disciple is mathetes, which is in the masculine gender. This view does not seem to have a sufficient merit, however, for it requires the reading of a noun, disciple, where a verb to disciple actually appears. And it does so despite there being a suitable antecedent noun present, which is separated from the pronoun by only one word. It also presses a general rule beyond necessity. Weiner's grammar notes, it is a peculiarity common to the pronouns, whether personal, demonstrative, or relative, that they not unfrequently take a different gender from that of the nouns to which they refer, regard being had to the meaning of the nouns, not to their grammatical sex, as Matthew 19. Robertson dogmatically states in Matthew 28:19, Altos refers to ethne. He too points out the personal pronouns are sometimes used freely according to sense. Linsky concurs. The discipline is of all the nations, Matthew 28:19. The preaching of repentance is to all the nations, Luke 24:47. Why should not all the nations be baptized, Matthew 28:19? In fact, do not the Old Testament prophets expect such? For example, Isaiah 52:12 through 15 prophesies of Christ. Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. Just as many were astonished at you, my people, so his appearance was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. Thus he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him. Fourth, the eschatology of Scripture elsewhere expects worldwide conversions. Although space prohibits our full discussion of the evidence, I will select just two classes of evidence for the discipling and baptizing, the Christianization of the world, the presence and prospects of God's kingdom. That Christ's kingdom is powerfully present and growing in influence is evident upon the following points, considerations. One, the time of the kingdom came in Christ's ministry. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Mark 1, 14 and 15. 2. The kingdom was declared present and operative during his ministry. If I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Matthew 12, 28. 3. In the lifetime of his hearers, it would show its power. Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who shall not taste of death until they see the kingdom of God after it had come with power. Mark 9, 1. Number 4. Christ is even now at the throne of God, ruling and reigning over his kingdom. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. 
Revelation 3.22. 5. His rule will grow to encompass the entire world until he has put down all opposition. He, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. Hebrews 10.12-13. The designs and results of Christ's redemption. It is evident from the New Testament record that Christ's design and salvation was to secure the redemption of the world, as I showed earlier. 1. He died in order to redeem the world. The Greek word for world, cosmos, signifies the world as the system of men and things. God created this world of men and things. Christ has come to redeem it back to God. God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world should be saved through Him. John 3.17 2. He died with the expectation of drawing all men to Himself. If I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to Myself. John 12.31 Christ is called the Savior of the world because of the comprehensive design and massive influence of His redemptive labors. The Great Commission is the means by which God will draw all men to Christ. Despite the clear statement in the Great Commission, there are evangelical Christians of influence who somehow miss what seems so obvious. At an academic discussion held over this whole question, some evangelicals maintain the futility of trying to change the world in the current age. Dispensational theologian Harold Honer replied against postmillennial hope. I just can't buy their basic presupposition that we can do anything significant to change the world. Another evangelical, Albert Dagger, has stated, To disciple all the nations, or make disciples out of all the nations, does not mean that every nation as a whole is one day going to learn the ways of truth. The Great Commission requires us to go into all the nations and disciple whosoever will be saved. It is interesting to note that in order to discount the glorious expectation of the commission, Dagger has to import words into the text. The following italicized words show his textual additions. Make disciples out of all the nations. Go into all the nations. And disciple whosoever will. Christ simply says, make disciples of all the nations, without all the embellishments. The basic issue is this. Discipling nations means extending God's kingdom authority in history. One recent evangelical book attempts a strong case against the obvious meaning of the Great Commission, a case which forms, in essence, the whole point of that book. Popular writer Hal Lindsey vigorously assaults the very interpretation of the Great Commission which I am suggesting. He cites the Great Commission with translational observations and then comments on those observations. Go, therefore, and make disciples of Greek out of all the nations, tall ethne, and Greek the Gentiles, baptizing them. Nothing in these great commission passages imply that we will convert the world and take dominion over it. Later, after citing postmillennialists who view the commission as I am presenting it, he comments, They interpret the command, make disciples of all the nations, to mean the Christianizing of society and culture, and the systematic taking over of all the governments of the world. There is very important reason, in addition to those listed above, why this interpretation is unsupportable from the Bible. The original Greek text of Matthew 28.19 will not permit this interpretation. The genitive construction means a part out of a whole. The term nations is the same Greek word ethne I dealt with in chapter 4. There never have been and there never will be a totally Christian nation until the Lord Jesus Christ personally reigns upon this earth. In response, I say this is a very important reason why Lindsay's interpretation is unsupportable. There is absolutely no genitive case nations in Matthew 28.19. If there is no genitive, there can be no genitive construction. What he thinks is the genitive case is actually an accusative with which he accuses us. Consequently, his very important reason is a figment of his imagination. 
Furthermore, the scriptures I have cited above do expect a Christian world as a result of the promotion of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Donald G. Barnhouse, a dispensationalist forerunner of Lindsay Hunt and others cited herein, is surely wrong when he presses the point of a perpetual minority status for Christianity. He attempts to do so based on the statement in Acts 15.14. So, together they mean to call out of, to take something out of its setting. This is what God does. He reaches down and takes out a people. God is not going to save everyone in Philadelphia or New York or San Francisco or Rocktown Center or wherever. No, God says, I'm saving this one and that one and these and those and this person and that individual. But then what becomes of his being the Savior of the world, John 4.42, and of all men, John 12.32? Why does he command us to disciple all nations, baptizing them? Matthew 28:19. House and ice assert of the various post-resurrection commissions of Christ, there is no language or tone in either of these passages that will support the notion of Christianizing the world. But as I have shown, that is precisely the language and tone of the Great Commission. It is interesting that these dispensationalist writers are at variance with other dispensationalists, who vehemently argue that the Great Commission does involve the very discipling of the nations. Dispensationalists... W. H. Griffith Thomas writes, English phrase, make disciples of all the nations, is ambiguous, for literal rendering of Greek is rather make all nations disciples, and not make disciples out of all nations. Thus, commission embraces whole nations rather than indicating individuals from among them. Acts 14.21, the apostles made many, many people disciples. Matthew gives the aim and scope of the Great Commission in passages like Acts 14.21 and 15.14, actual results. Neither are all millennialists immune from washing out the victory inherent in the Great Commission and elsewhere in Scripture. An otherwise excellent treatise entitled God-Centered Evangelism by Reformed theologian R.B. Kuyper sees no ultimate pre-Second Advent victory for the Great Commission. Jesus' parables of the mustard seed and the leaven, Matthew 13, 31-33, teach the growth of Christ's kingdom and the growth of Satan's kingdom is patently implicit in the Savior's plantative query. When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? That twofold process of the concurrent growth of Christ's kingdom and Satan's kingdom is being exemplified in current events. The heathen nations are slowly being Christianized, while Christian nations are reverting to paganism. Likewise, Anthony Hoakimo writes, Alongside of the growth and development of the kingdom of God in the history of the world since the coming of Christ, we also see the growth and development of the kingdom of evil. And in response to the postmillennial interpretation of Matthew 28, 18-20, as set forth by Lorraine Boatner, Hoakimo argues, the clear implication of Matthew 13, 36-43 is that Satan's kingdom, if we may call it that, will continue to exist and grow as long as God's kingdom grows until Christ comes again. The New Testament gives indications of a continuing strength of that kingdom of evil until the end of the world. Hendrikus Burkhoff also posits a parallel development of good and evil. We must ask ourselves important questions regarding the expectation of the Great Commission. For instance, since the Great Commission is covenantal obligation, does it not have appropriate succession arrangements, which are designed to ensure its continuance and, and fulfillment? We should consider which is stronger, sinful depravity or gracious redemption. Is not the gospel the power of God unto salvation, Romans 1.16? Does Satan have an equally great commission? Is Christ struggling to draw until the last moments of history? Shall Antichrist prevail in the very history in which Christ entered and commissioned his church? All such non-postmillennial thinking runs aground on the very greatness of the Great Commission. For in that commission we find a vivid expectation of a gospel-induced conversion of the world, an expectation fully compatible with the teaching of Scripture in all sections, an anticipation that does not require a reading of words into the text, 
a glorious hope that is fully commensurate with the authority available and the goal set. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows, or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit reconstructionistradio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His kingdom.